Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton. We have such an exciting episode today, we can hardly breathe. It's true, we are fangirling all over the shop. It's quite meta, actually. It is, although hilariously, we teased that last week and one listener tweeted saying they thought the surprise guest was Chrissy Teigen. You'd love her on this, to be fair. I do, it's true, and, and one day I live in hope. Before we introduce our guest, tell me what you've been enjoying this week, Dolly. really immersed myself in the Long Form Podcast, which is an American podcast which interviews long-form writers. And there was an interview with New Yorker journalist Ariel Levy talking about her profile she did with Nora Ephron. And I'd never read it. And Nora is my absolute favourite writer and I adore Ariel Levy's journalism. So I had to seek it out and it didn't disappoint. It's a really, really great profile. It's one of those super immersive, really long-form profiles that you and I often bemoan the absence of in journalism. She goes to Nora Ephron's apartment. She has dinner with her and her husband, Nick Pileggi. She goes to the Oscars of the food world with her and they sit on a table with Stanley Tucci. It's a proper portrait of a really marvellous and fascinating woman and writer and I loved it. And I wanted to read an extract that kind of shows the observant picture painting it gives, which is really magic and I think almost kind of cinematic reporting. So she's at Nick Pileggi and Nora Ephron's house having dinner and they're talking about their wedding. They invited about 40 guests to a dinner party and then surprised them by getting married at it. You could have easily done it, Pileggi said, though I think I was against it at the time. Yes, you were, his wife said. I just thought, you're getting married on that day. Do you really want to be in the kitchen cooking stuff while you're getting dressed and the guests are coming and you don't know what other stuff is going to come up that you don't know about? Anyway, Efron said. There is a restaurant in Washington, D.C. called Nora, which was very popular while Efron was married to Bernstein, and she still gets worked up remembering her friends being fed by another Nora. People would say, let's go to Nora's, and I could not stand it, I could not stand it, Efron said, silently banging her skinny fist on the table. I always used to say it was one of the reasons I had to leave Washington, because I was so used to being the only Nora. Pileggi finished beaming. And anyone Harry Met Sally fan will be able to imagine that could almost be, you know, those um, interludes on the sofas with the couples. It's kind of, it feels like it could have been lifted straight out of that screenplay. So it was just a really magical piece of reporting and I loved it and I know I'm going to keep returning to it. Lucky Ariel Levy, journalism like that doesn't come commissioned in the UK very often, does it? Rarely, I think. And I'm loath to say that a lot of it is the grip that PR has over journalism because I upset a lot of PRs last time I said that. But I do think it's true and I get it. They're doing their job, we're doing ours. We're stuck between a rock and a hard place. On a lighter note, 
Of course we couldn't let this episode go by without talking about the Greg's sausage roll baby Jesus. My favourite story <laughs> of all time. My mum did think it was a bit risque, actually, of Greg. Oh, did she? But Greg's the baker got in hot water last week when they replaced the baby Jesus in a nativity scene with a giant sausage roll as one of their adverts. The Telegraph reported on this so well, they were obviously having a snigger. The Telegraph reports some complained after the image redacted Jesus in favour of a baked good. Simon Richard called for a boycott of the bakery chain on Twitter, writing, please boycott at Greg's official to protest against its sick anti-Christian advent calendar. What cowards these people are. We all know that they would have never dared insult other religions. They should donate every penny of their profits to at Salvation Army UK. Another agreed tweeting, TBH, I'm glad Christians kicked off and Greg's apologised for replacing Jesus with a sausage roll. No other religion would stand for that nonsense. I tweeted um, something that I'd read someone else had written on Twitter, which was, when a saviour is replaced by a savoury. <laughs> it was so good. What's most insane is what it was advertising, which was an advent calendar, which contains a voucher for a treat each day in the run-up to Christmas, which is yours for the rather extravagant sum of £24. I say extravagant, but I bet you get a lot for £24. Well, initially... I did think that was sort of unforgivably decadent for an advent calendar. Unforgivably decadent and Greg's. Unforgivably decadent. But then I suppose it could be your lunch every day of the week. Would you buy one? No, I do love Greg's, actually. Do but you? Yeah, delicious. I love a sort of uh, cheese and onion pastry. God, but that's I couldn't, a bit of a turn up to the books. I couldn't have one every day. I think that is, that is quite indulgent. <laughs> What's been happening in your world this week, Pandora? Well, I'm hugely enjoying that you're drinking a juice called T-Rex. Oh, Pandora thought that I asked Whole Foods I think she asked for her name to be put on it. My name isn't T-Rex. I think she said I'd like a big green juice, and because I'm feeling rawr today, I'd like you to call it a T-Rex. Do you think I'm subtly trying to get a nickname to start happening? I don't know, but I mean, I'm loving that name. T-Rex Alderton. Um, I had a farcical night last night. I dropped a magnum of champagne on my foot, which is such a first world injury. There we go, from Greg's to magnum of champagne. From Greg's to Merritt. It had been on top of my fridge for two years since I got engaged, waiting for a special moment, which apparently was my foot there. (laughs) Did it smash? No, and neither did my foot, which is extraordinary. Oh, thank God. And as I limped into the bedroom, my entire wardrobe collapsed. I watched it honestly just inwardly fold like a Greg's pastry (laughs) so I tripped backwards onto my mirror and it cracked giving me seven years bad luck so I have a moment bruise on my foot I think it's a metaphor for my life right now which is slightly all over the place and that's not even including the hour before when I had a slightly breathtaking interlude with one girl who I'd never met who told me that she'd heard about me getting fired from an internship six years ago oh god I would hate to hear something like that that's always fun isn't it to be reminded of one's career highs and lows on a dark and dreary Monday night. Can I just return to this um, metaphor for your life? I'm not sure if it is. I think it's just a biblical omen to tell us that we all spend way too much money on clothes and not enough money on the crap Ikea wardrobes that we all buy. It's an inbuilt wardrobe, Dolly. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, I'm moving in two weeks. It, it's fine. I, I just walked away from it. But I did manage to find a dress that still <laughs> fit me. You walked away like an action hero who like just lets off a bomb and when then I say slowly I wa- walks when away. When I say I walked away, I walked two paces and then sat down at my computer and wrote a script with you and tried to pretend that this wasn't <laughs> going on behind. The cat loved it. She buried herself in it. This week, I've been enjoying Marlena by Julie Bunton, which is a work fiction about 15-year-old Kat and her pill-popping best friend Marlena, who we learn dies. I'm reading a lot of fiction about troubled teens dying at the moment. Completely unintentional, just that a lot of the young writers writing the fiction that's kind of getting hyped or covered mm. by outlets that I really enjoy 
seems to be about young women going off the rails or the women that fraternise with the women that go off the rails. Mm. People have got a real interest in Generation Z at the minute, I think, as well. I do actually find stories like that very interesting. I've always loved a buildings roman coming-of-age story. Mm. I also went accidentally viral on Twitter. At least, I think I went viral. What counts as going viral? I would say probably over a 1,000 retweets is the viral category. Is that official? No, it's obviously not official. I don't know anything about computers and or the internet, so you will know. <laughs> That's just the number of retweets I think I would have to get to then feel confident enough for my ego to go out for dinner that night with friends and boast about the fact I was a viral superstar. Just historically, that's what I know. OK, so according to your algorithm, I went <laughs> almost viral with 959 retweets. Oh, just on the cusp. But I wouldn't say my ego went out for a starter or even for tapas. I'd say that my <laughs> ego, thanked God that you can mute Twitter. I've been muting and blocking like nobody's business. I've never done that in my whole life, by the way. What did you tweet? I'm intrigued. I tweeted a link to a piece about Sarah Silverman's response to the Louis C.K. accusations. I found her articulation of the painful realisation that fellow comedian Louis, who is one of her best friends, is a sex abuser. I found her comments really powerful. So I tweeted with the link, Sarah Silverman on best friend and sex pest, Louis C.K., is brilliant and brave. You can love someone who does bad things, but you can't ignore what they've done. Take note, fellow actors. And in return, I got a maelstrom of criticism from conservative Americans concerning everything from my use of the word or the phrase sex pest, which they said mollified his crimes, to which I said once and then got bored. It's on the front cover of the Evening Standard in reference to Kevin Spacey and his 20 crimes. It's hardly a playful, trivial term. I think that's an American English thing. To the fact that I was celebrating Sarah for standing by her friend, according to Jeanette, who popped up a lot, and her merry gang of morally perfect individuals (laughs) in their glass houses in Bible Belt America, no one should be friends with anyone who does anything wrong. Apparently, we should drop anyone that does anything wrong rather than realising that sometimes, to be a good friend, the people who most need us are those who do disgusting, amoral things and that actually they need a friend by their side to help right their wrongs and redeem themselves as best they can because that's what friendship is. I agree with you. I really fucking hate the internet this week. I was thinking about having a break from Twitter. I think Sarah Silverman approached a very uncomfortable and difficult subject with great sensitivity. That a lot of people have been avoiding. Yes, Only her exactly. and Mark Moran bothered to say anything at all. Yeah, I think she I think she approached it with real compassion and intelligence. And I can't understand these people online continuously who can so confidently assert that they have never made a mistake and would cut off all connections with someone they loved who has made a mistake. What Sarah Silverman is doing in that speech is opening up her thinking process to us which I really respected and appreciated she's saying she hasn't really come to any conclusion yet but telling us the feelings she's working through and I think to make yourself vulnerable like that is highly commendable no one's saying Louis CK didn't fuck up for God's sake least of all Sarah Silverman I'm really bored of people missing the point of tweets and like tweeting at me Oh, so we'll just forgive every white person that commits a sex crime. And it's like, that was not the point of the tweet. There's just no room for it you. It just really comes anymore. back to how the internet for- enforces this belief that we should be really binary about people. You know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, but people are either on the internet, wholly good or wholly bad. Some people make small mistakes, all of us. Case in point, fired from my first internship, age 24, whoop whoop. <laughs> Some people make massive mistakes. Louis C.K.'s in the latter category. But criticising Sarah Silverman for being honest enough to admit that she categorically finds her close friend's actions disgusting, but that she is nonetheless still his friend. Well, to that I say, go be perfect elsewhere, Jeanette. Go choose your perfect friends Mm. elsewhere and Mm. get off my timeline. 
Also, this is a slight sideline, but on the subject of interacting with Americans online... My God, we're going to get so many angry. I even tweeted this morning, muting Americans all over the shop. Shall I say this bit? I really want to say yeah, this bit. Yeah, you say this bit. I find it interesting that your use of the word sex pest, the semantics of which I think are widely understood here, and it's not even that tabloidy a phrase, I think... Also, this isn't directed at singular Americans. This is general cultural difference that is just something I've noticed that's starting to annoy me. I hate that English audiences are always expected to understand and digest American lexicon and culture with zero explanation, which is not an unfeasible task because we go away, we look up an American cultural touchstone online, like what is alimony or Congress or Labor Day? Like over the years, through reading and watching American stuff, I now understand what all those terms are. Then we understand the joke or the line or the character and yet there's this slightly colonial notion that Americans can't show English culture the same courtesy and yes (laughs) this is because American editors always take out my references to British things, including Yorkshire Tea and Nigel Havers. And uh, frankly, it's pissing me off. I'm not even going to ask why Nigel <laughs> Havers got into a piece you were writing for any audience. That, that might have been a dub joke. Let alone American. <laughs> but, but should we leave that at that? I did have an interesting one, actually, the other day. I'm a contributing editor to an American website called Man Repeller, which is very good. Go check it out. And I was writing a piece and I used the term high street. Lots of people in the comment section were like, I don't understand the high street. And I just assumed they meant we don't understand the the shop or something. And then I realised that that, in America, they just call that fast fashion. I was like, I never knew that. They don't have a local high street because we're very small and they're very big. There we go. Sorry, Americans. Please keep listening. We do love you. We have quite a lot of listeners there. We actually really do love Americans. Support for the Hilo comes from Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Each week we are going to do a curiosity challenge in which Pandora or I pose a question to each other, encompassing the Hilo's ethos of covering all things from the philosophical to the personal to the absurd to the surreal. So, Pandora, my question to you this week, and it is my favourite question to ask anyone and I think the quickest tunnel into their soul what would your last meal on earth be yes you love that question this is not the first time you've asked me this or or even the second it's got such reverential importance to you I feel the sort of suffocating pressure of the of the weight of this question and I never know how to answer as well because unlike you I don't go to bed every night and think about what I'm gonna eat the next day no no think about what my last meal on earth would be I think that's the last thing you think of torture myself okay so I'm just gonna go on instinct of the things that I that I know I love. So gyoza to start. Prawn or chicken? Any. My mum's sausage plat for the main course and a blondie to finish. Oh, do you know what? You have mentioned those before, so I will take that as a legitimate answer. Not blondie the pop star, a blondie. The Google Pixel 2 is the world's best smartphone camera. No, seriously, it is. Even in low light, the resolution is astounding. In fact, Dolly, I noticed that your Sunday night dinner performed very highly on Instagram this week. Yes, and I do put that down to the Google Pixel 2. It was not the prawn fettuccine. It was purely the camera, I think. The Google Pixel 2 actually really comes into its own when it comes to close-ups of pasta. That's your new tagline, Google. Thank (laughs) you very much to Google Pixel 2. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's now time to introduce our guest. It's sort of an author special because she does, in fact, have a book out and a very good one at that. But more specifically, it's an interview with the patron saint of the Hilo. Those who listen carefully will know that the name of our podcast refers to high-low journalism, which means the mix of the trivial and the political, or as our author puts it, any topic that illuminates the zeitgeist. Our guest today is iconic editor Tina Brown. In the glossy media world of the 80s, Tina became editor of Tatler aged just 25 and editor of Vanity Fair aged 29. By the time she left to go and edit The New Yorker, still in her 30s, she was earning over $600,000 a year. She left The New Yorker to launch Talk with Harvey Weinstein, more on that later, before writing The Princess Diana Chronicles, a staggering biography of Princess Diana, which many of you will remember I read earlier this year. She later launched the Daily Beast website. One of the most powerful and influential and iconic women to have ever worked in magazine journalism and the media, she transformed magazines and in many ways birthed celebrity culture. Now Tina's written a book about her nine years at Vanity Fair called The Vanity Fair Diaries. Published by Orion Books, it's a riotous romp through the 80s, hilarious and smart and forensic in its observation. So welcome to the studio, Tina. Thank you so much for gracing the high-low with your presence. Very happy to grace you. <laughs> you might have noticed we essentially named our podcast after you. You famously coined the term high-low journalism, which is the founding ethos of this podcast, which is all about elevating the trivial and approaching the academic with a reverence and kind of vice versa. Well, thank you very much. I'm most flattered to hear that the high-low has anything to do with me, I have to say. So that's good news. I was fascinated to hear on your episode of Desert Island Discs that your mother was a great party thrower, often reveling and inviting kind of towering literary legends like Dame Rebecca West, as well as more kind of broad entertainers like Benny Hill. Do you think that's where your interests of blending the high and the low might have come from? Definitely had an influence on me, probably, because I did have this background when my parents, my father was a film producer, and yet at the same time, my mother was very bookish. And, you know, I went to to Oxford. And so there was this kind of blend. And I've always, I've always loved movies and 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 the sort of fun aspect of the flash life but at the same time you know I'm I'm kind of a blue stocking who sits there you know with my big glasses you know so yeah maybe that's what it was but it's I also think it's very european i mean i think the european literary uh, culture has always been able to blend those two things unlike in america where if you're serious you're supposed to only show gravitas at all times right. and uh, there's a great sort of sense of oh you know this doesn't belong in the new york times this doesn't belong in the washington post but i like to be able to do both you know and that's the whole fun of it it's about how well you do it that's the point but also people are rounded they're not only interested in the as much as they might like to think they're not only interested in the sort of really abstract academic you are all affected by exactly. the way pop culture exactly. shapes us you know well, also and I social do think media the two things together give it, it energy you know you, you you read some huge meaty piece about what's happening in the middle east or something and then your brain needs a little bit of a sorbet course before you go on to the next thing so i always regarded that as the sorbet courses between the big pieces in vanity fair maybe that's what we'll think about when we talk about the kardashians now that's just a quick soups on sorbet. That would be our sorbet. That sorbet's gone on a long time. <laughs> it's a five-course sorbet as far as I can see. 
Well, we both spent the weekend in raptures over the Vanity Fair diaries. Oh, it's searingly honest and revelatory, which is something I really recognised in Alexandra Shulman's diary as well, mm-hmm. which she published about her time at British Vogue when she was very honest about everyone's sense of humour failings or their peccadilloes like David Bailey's epic hissy fits. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of the key characters in your book, not a lot, but some of the key characters in your book are now dead but were you worried about those living and their reactions to the book has anyone got in touch and said I can't believe you wrote that or I can't believe you remembered that I suspect that's waiting for me like a lighted fuse you know (laughs) I I sort of published the book and jumped on an airplane so to come to London so probably when I arrive there'll be all kinds of hissy letters waiting for me but um or emails arriving but so far I've had I've had a very good reaction so far I have to say people have enjoyed it I think they've They've, it's a good time for diaries, you know, because I think people find, have got very little time and there's a sense of being in the here and now in a diary and you can also graze as well as read it as a whole beginning to end. And that's a, a good rhythm, I think, for these crazy times. Diana Athill, who's another great writer, once said of being a memoirist that the only way you can do it is by exposing indecent truths. <laughs> so there are certainly moments in the book where both Pandora and I were texting each other and we really applauded your transparency and definitely appreciated the the challenges you must have faced of being a diarist and publishing those things. We were particularly impressed with how honest you were when you were talking about money, negotiating fees and how much you earned at certain times. As that's something that we're expected to be discreet about, but is, but is paramount to parity in any given industry, is that something you feel is important to be frank about? It's interesting, isn't it, how people are far more reticent about talking about money than they are about sex. You know, they'll <laughs> reveal everything about sex, but they won't see how much they're paid. Mm. I did really think about that, funnily enough, because I thought, is this bad taste? Is this going to uh, offend people who are paid much less even, you know, when I'm sitting there saying I'm not paid enough? Then I thought, you know what, women have a really hard time asking for rises. They just do. They're not, they just, I'm surrounded in women who feel they're not paid enough and feel kind of nervous about bringing it up, which is completely insane. So I thought, I'm going to put in here how difficult I found it was and how I realized that actually I was very underpaid at a certain point. I start by being very glad and grateful that I get this fabulous job. I'm very young. They took a risk on me. That was all great. I I was grateful. But after about three years, I'd really turned this thing into a juggernaut. And I was in a whole different bracket, you know, I was being competed for and I wanted to, sh- to to get what I was due, particularly when I discovered that the editor of GQ was paid more than I was. That really got me in a state of fury because I thought, why should he be paid more, you know, when I've turned this thing around? So I then enlisted the help of an agent and, you know, he went and had the difficult conversations. I wish I could say that, you know, I turned around and, you know, flexing my muscles, I stormed in and said, I'm underpaid. But I still couldn't do that, but I did get I did get an agent to go in and say, you know, she's seriously uncompetitively paid here, and I got a big hike, which was a very exciting moment for me, I must say. You did. I mean, there was one point, I think, when you said you were earning $600,000 as the editor of Vanity Fair, and I loved reading that you had a dress allowance and that at one point <laughs> you were advised to obtain a social secretary to stop you from eating in the wrong part of the restaurant. I love that bit. It felt like exactly how I would imagine the 80s to be. This I kind mean, of... is it hilarious? <laughs> Editors just don't have social secretaries. You know, I mean, it was hilarious. I couldn't believe it. I'd arrived from Little Tatlow, you know, with its staff of 12. And all of a sudden, Condé Nast in New York just was like 
felt like General Motors or something. And I was <laughs> told I was just not eating in a fancy enough part of the restaurant, that I should have been in the ground floor, not in the gallery, which was, as they put it, Siberia. You cannot be in Siberia, my dear, said the editorial director. You really must eat with the editor of Vogue, who before Anna Winter became editor of Vogue, you really must eat with Miss Birnbella on the main floor of the restaurant. So that was what it was. And our, and our, and our Ubers were kind of Lincoln Town cars, <laughs> you know, and, I, and, and the Four Seasons was 250 bucks for a salad, you know, which is, I mean, now everybody has to sort of, you can't even, you can't even go out for a measly cheese sandwich without, you know, and put it on your expenses. Well, I'm not sure you can even expense a press. Oh, no, you uh, can't expense Previous a places I have worked. But something <laughs> that I really loved that I think it was in Alec Baldwin's interview, you said that there was a real investment and interest in these editors being stars. There was. Of you, of you kind of having a, an identity and an agency and a power and a glamour. There was. I mean, the Newhouse family were absolutely fantastic to work for, quite frankly. I mean, Jonathan Newhouse has transformed international condenast over here in the UK. But his uncle, Cy Newhouse, for whom I worked, and who just recently died, who was the chairman Last of condenast Yeah, he died, he died in September, late September. Fantastic person to work for. You know, he was this sort of short, nervous, shy billionaire you know, who, who, who was sort of reluctant to power in a strange way. But other, in other ways, he, he was almost like a kind of studio boss who yes. enjoyed his talent all sizzling away. You know, he loved me being in the, in the press. He loved Anna Winter being a star. Later, he liked Graydon Carter being well-known. And that's wonderful. It was a kind of generous thing. You felt supported and you didn't feel competed with, which sometimes that happens, you know, that the, 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 the management actually feels competitive with the, a star editor. But that is not the way it was in Condé Nast in the 80s, for sure. It was a time of journalism that Dolly and I really wish we'd lived through, namely for the champagne lunches. <laughs> of course, there was this immense sadness running throughout the book, which runs parallel to your life at Vanity Fair, of the AIDS crisis with a lot of your friends and colleagues, both past and present, succumbing to this devastating disease. Yeah, that was the, that's like a kind of the fugue music, as it were, in, in the Vanity Fair diaries, is how the AIDS epidemic, it's one of the things, you know, when you go back and read diaries, things just strike you, obviously, about your era that you didn't think of as much. But I'm always at funerals, you know, but in the Vanity Fair diaries. I'm always at funerals. You know, so many people in fashion and art and literature and, and ballet, and I mean, they were dying every few weeks. And it was such a terrifyingly sad thing. And there's one very sad scene in the, in the diaries where a young editor of 32 comes in and says to me, you know, I can't, I can't and go on. And, he, and, and we just, that. both of us sit and, and cry in the office. And I say to him, you know, he says, I always wanted to have a magazine myself. And it's so sad, 32. Yeah. And it's really poignant, I think, to be offered that dark underside throughout this period you're talking about, which is otherwise, you know, so much decadence and so much glamour. Yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't all glitz. There was actually this really there was. Um, devastating crisis. The media and society is a, is a different place now, except, you could say, when it comes to misogyny. I mean, even you, with your unparalleled trajectory, consistently experienced misogyny. The New York Times described you as a sprinkling gold dust at Vanity Fair. Newsweek described you as a red Porsche, whilst you and Anna Wintour, <laughs> a similarly iconic editor at the helm of American Vogue, are referred to as buzzy, which is a bit like when Dolly and I... It's not a bit like... But reminded me of when Dolly and I get called frothy. Pandora and I fight against, against you frothy. Know, it just drives you crazy. I mean, they all always wrote about like you know even just the other day when they were writing the the the, the obituary of Cy Newhouse it said you know it wrote all these kind of very august things about the male editors and it said he also had the buzz obsessed Tina Brown and Anna Winter I thought 
How interesting. We're the Buzz Sisters. You know, Anna went abroad in billions, you know, through Vogue. I mean, I yeah, like turn around Vanity Fair in the New Yorker. How come we get to be the Buzz Sisters in this piece? You know, but that, it is the way that they put down women. It's just, it's extraordinary. At one point, you're told that your success is down to your looks and your lifestyle. And you comment mm. in your diary, I feel really depressed by this. I truly cannot imagine any man ever being told a thing like that. I was so aggravated. You know, it's like, so this is what I, everyone attributes turning around Tatler that was at the time. It's like that my, quote, looks and my lifestyle was just so offensive actually but you know you got used to it I mean in the end of the day you know do fish notice water I mean you don't you sort of it was the it was the air we breathed and in a sense and I, I mean it still it still does that but not as bad as it really was in the 80s I was quite struck looking at this old footage of me in the 80s actually recently on television presenting Vanity Fair to the management and it's all men all these white men all sitting around a table at the time I didn't realize then how strange it was but it was just the way it was you know that's how so it the was default. the yeah. default yeah there's this terrifyingly prescient bit where you and Gloria Steinem and I think Nora Ephron, various other women, are chatting at a cocktail party. And Susan Michael says, a girlfriend of mine went through a phase where guys in suits were always jerking off at her on the subway. And reading that, I just thought that could be now. She could literally, with all the hashtag Me Too stories, be writing that right now. It's staggering, isn't it? What is this kind of exhibitionist sexuality stuff? I just don't get it. I mean, I understand it's men on coming on to women. I do. But I do not understand this whole bathrobe flashing. And, you know, my my great friend uh, in New York, Charlie Rose, who's the major TV most famous interviewer in New York, most prestigious show of all, who's been an icon for the last 30 years just today, is like another one who's gone down. And it turns out, you know, bathrobes and and assistants and showing, you know, opening the bathrobe and all things. I'm just thinking, I don't get it. It's very, very strange. Reading the comments from Peter Grebram, movie producer, just felt really eerie. He said to you, Tina, what you have to understand is that Hollywood is ruled by its dick. I know you're a woman, but you understand what I'm saying. The business, movies, it's about two things, power and sex, which leads us very neatly into Weinstein, who you worked with two years when you left The New Yorker to launch the magazine. Talk, which you have since said was a disastrous career move. I know you've been on endless shows in the last few weeks talking about your experience of working with Weinstein. Were you shocked by the allegations? Well, I was shocked at the extent of the violence, quite frankly. Uh, I was really shocked that he... The grossness and the extent of his predatoriness was psychotic. I mean, I you know, in terms of there's a pathology to it. The way again and again and again, you know, he he was he 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 forced himself on women who didn't want him and made them cower and be terrified and constantly, you know, exhibitionistically masturbating all these terrible things. I was really stunned that it was as violent as that. I, I thought he was just a kind of uh, uh, you know, sleazy guy who loves starlets. I had no idea that this was going on, I have to say. I read somewhere that you said that you found it very haunting when you listened to that recording of him kind of cajoling an actress into his hotel room because it reminded yeah. you of... Yeah, it did. I mean, it was very unsettling to hear him uh, speaking that way because it did remind me of his combination of bullying and wheedling that he does, where it's the classic abuser in a sense, which is charm you break you down, then get nasty, then get to be bullying, then humiliating, then coming back at you wheedling. It's, it's a very, very manipulative technique. And he certainly used that on me professionally all the time. And it was just very unsettling to hear that voice, I have to say. And you said he kind of went on a huge wooing charm offensive to bring you over from... Yes, he did. I mean, he did. Listen, I would never have gone to work with a man who clearly was unpleasant as he became or is. 
No, he was, he's very charming, Harvey, when he wants to be. And don't forget, he was doing great films. You know, we mustn't forget when I went to work for Harvey, you know, he'd just done Shakespeare in Love and, and The English Patient and My Left Foot and all these wonderful films. Pretty much every movie I'd ever Over liked. 300 producer credits. Yeah, I mean, and, and they were Oscars and they were classic, fabulous movies which showed great taste. So it is one of the weirdest things about Harvey that a person of such personal grossness actually had such impeccable taste when it came to films. Imagine how grotesque that must feel to him, that he's he feels like he's a person of taste, but he looks in the mirror and he sees, you know, it's Beauty and the Beast, really. You know. Do you think he can recover from this? No, no, I don't think Harvey can recover from this because it was brutal acts and I think that... Just don't know where he'll go next. No, he has he has no ability to recover from this, and also because he was a great bully professionally. So there were a lot of people who just you know found themselves very wounded, as I was, by working with him without the sex. So that's the thing; he doesn't have friends. Charlie Rose, who's the big TV interviewer, who just you know flamed out this morning. He is a beloved figure. You know, he people so love people will help Charlie. Redeem I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. Where do, where do they? Uh, I don't know whether there will be any comeback for these for these people, and it's a really extraordinary thing we're looking at, which is a huge cultural shift. I think overdue in the sense that there's a watershed moment. I think women are just tired of playing nice. You know, I think that women are tired of being shut down. And so what we're seeing is this huge reaction to being shut down, period. And during your time at Vanity Fair, where you would have been very immersed in those kind of upper society echelons, did you ever hear stories about the Kevin Spaceys or the Dustin Hoffmans? Are there any stories that broke about these men where you thought, oh, finally... Well, Dustin Hoffman was considered a man who liked women. It was different. I mean, you know, because there was no social media, don't forget. So we didn't have the kind of transparency or the Me Too effect. You know, if a woman complained about a star or you heard whispers about a star's behavior, you didn't know the details because you didn't have the social media. So that's the classic difference is this Me Too effect where people can pile on. You know, no sooner have you heard one woman say something than 30 other women say, I had that experience too. We weren't able to do that then. That's true. It's kind of been impossible before... You're right, social media gives you the unity, yeah. the, the collaborative effect yeah. of, of the chorus of women's voices. A few times in the book, you mention that you feel like you're more of an editor than a writer. But I consistently loved the way that you described people throughout <laughs> the book. You talk about Annie Leibovitz as a woman who had demons, demons which you salute. You describe an editor you hire at one point as being a Taurus right down to their toes. And your turn of phrase when describing people, in particular celebrities, I thought was pitch perfect. Thank you. The book is worth reading alone for its celebrity stories. I mean, you have some marvellous anecdotes from Trump pouring a glass of wine down a writer's back after she wrote a profile on him for Vanity Fair, to Boris Johnson, who you encountered at Oxford and called an epic shit, and obviously he's not having a great time now, to Princess Diana, a woman who you were often compared to in looks and who you knew well enough to have lunch with just six weeks before she died, and of course whom you wrote the famously brilliant book, The Princess Diana Chronicles. Well, Diana was a recurring sort of motif, really, throughout my whole editing career. You know, I first got to know her when I, she was engaged to Charles, and she was this 19-year-old with this velvet skin. I mean, I, I was hypnotised by her huge blue eyes that were like pools of limpid feeling, you know, and then this velvet complexion. She was so much more beautiful in real life, actually. And then, of course, as she went got older, she also became this huge kind of celebrity diva in a way, in the way and she media was. media star. And media star. So that, you know, the difference between the, the Diana I met in uh, 1981 and the Diana I last met in 1997 was the evolution into this rock star figure. But she was still very vulnerable at the end. You know, she was still talking about her loneliness and she was still a person of enormous sensitivity and huge kind of soulful beauty. There's no doubt about it. I think your book really lays bare 
actually the enormous tragedy of being Princess Diana from being abandoned by... Well, not abandoned by her mother. I mean, her father forced her mother away out of spite, so she grew up motherless. And you draw a lot of comparisons with the way that Prince Charles, you know, didn't... He wasn't, of course, really brought up by his parents. They were both slightly motherless and rudderless, and neither of them seemed to bring out any kind of warmth or comfort in each other, which was really I know, and you know, the thing, now that I'm a mother of of a 26-year-old girl... I can't believe how young Diana was. I mean, 19? Re- 19? I have to say I was astounded reading that. You know, 19 I'm and she's just thrown, thrown into the in. wolves. Can you imagine? She not only has to be thrown in to this situation where she's got a family that's completely unable to express its emotions and is completely archaic in its whole monarchical structure and stuffy, you know, royal servants and disapproval. But then she also has a celebrity that's on the scale of, of you know, of Britney Spears. Yeah. And I mean, you know, rock stars can't handle it. And that's Why pre-social could, media. I mean, Imagine pre-social media. With the internet. Exactly. So she had this huge everything coming at this girl. I mean, it's really amazing that she did survive. I think I think as the years go by, one I certainly appreciate more and more what a tragedy it was that you know, it was actually an arranged marriage with Charles, but she was the only one who wasn't in on the secret. You know, yes. the whole family knew. She just didn't know. She thought it was a love match. Well, they'd only met about 10 times, hadn't yeah, they? And yeah, 13 times before they married. Cavorting with Camilla the whole way. That's right. The whole way through. And of that 13 times, I think five had somebody else with them, you know. So it was absolutely insane, really, the whole thing. And it's really remarkable, though, that she raised her boys, you know, to be such remarkable young men. I mean, that is the tribute to Diana. Mm. And they speak quite openly, actually, about how, I think it was an interview with GQ that, Prince William did earlier in the year when they were doing a lot around mental health and he said you know I wish I could have protected her she was really vulnerable and and I think Alistair Campbell who does the interview says you know she played the media and he says yeah I I think I think she read that wrong I wish I had been around to help steer her to help steer her which I thought I thought good for you I mean it's not like the royal family admit you know they're fallible at all in any way and he he basically was admitting that she played a dangerous game, and unfortunately, she did. It was but a game because she, lost. she was unfortunately though lonely too. I mean, yes. the media became the replacement approval the because she had no approval inside her own life. Uh, she looked to the press to kind of be her, lost to her. yeah, and and that's very unfortunate. You cannot do that with the press. You know, they're not, they're not going to be the friends that you want. And what's so sad is that beautiful way that you describe her with these pools of eyes of kind of very deep, soulful feelings. Is I remember reading an interview with her brother where he said. All throughout her teenage life, she always had her nose in a romance novel. She was a, a real romantic. She was, actually. She was so romantic. And then she had the, a marriage that you know was forever but wasn't loving. Terrible. You were also responsible for possibly one of the most famous magazine covers of all time, a naked, heavily pregnant Demi Moore in 1992. The culture critic Anne Helen Peterson writes in her book of this year, Too Fat, Too Slutty, Too Loud, that you completely changed the public perception of pregnancy, that before it was this slightly kind of vulgar state of womanhood, which you had to be really discreet about and kind of hide away in a moo-moo. And, and in fact, some stores like Safeway refused to sell that cover or they wrapped it in cellophane like it was Playboy, which which Dolly and I found hilarious reading. And as a pregnant woman, I thank you for, for you know changing that perception. Did you know that it would become one of the most iconic covers of all time? It's been aped and echoed for decades. I, I mean, even just recently, Serena Williams recreated that, that very Indeed. pose for Vanity Fair. I know, we've seen it cycle. again. It's become a rite of passage for film stars to do yeah. their Demi Moore covers. I have to do one myself, Dolly, for you. <laughs> <laughs> I did know that it was a blow for women because I wanted to do that blow. You know, I, I said, let's do this because I just had a baby myself and had been walking around in a huge flowered, you know, maternity dress. Remember maternity dresses? And I actually think that the Demi Moore cover did away with maternity clothes forever after that, really. But I had no idea it was going to be such a, 
I mean, in the pre-viral era, it was whatever viral was. You know, it went absolutely ballistic. And in fact, humorously, I remember the night before we published, I said to our PR person, I wonder if we can get on the Today Show with this. <laughs> in the, and I, you know, I said, we could, we'd like to get some press for the Demi Moore issue. <laughs> and then the damn thing was on, they led the news. Outlets or something, I mean, but there? also just led the news like two weeks in a row. There were polls in papers, should we have done it or not? It was on covers of newspapers in India and Venezuela. And, you know, it was just literally, it was everywhere and went on and on and on and it still goes on and it's um, a wonderful thing when that happens I mean Annie Leibovitz is a genius of course I mean she always went one better whatever you asked her to do I mean I wanted to show Demi Moore's stomach but it was her idea to do her naked as well mm. which made a certain difference you know, to the reception that it got she's yeah, extraordinary and, and Helen Peterson says that it was kind of memed before the the internet meme that you know right. it was echoed right. and, and rewritten and I did find it very funny that I mean it just shows you know how much has changed for the better but in in Anne Helen Peterson's book she says that there was a 23 year old who the Los Angeles Times reported as being like it's disgusting why would anyone show that you know and it's now something that thank god is very natural to the point where a lot of celebrities treat their pregnancy or their baby bump as like a sort of cute accessory as they, or, or well but listen it was it was a celebration of fertility which we should absolutely celebrate you know there was no reason why we should consider it some something to be modest about or shameful about i mean it's the most beautiful thing you can possibly celebrate and was that impacted by your experiences being pregnant and Very being much. a working mother because the Very book much. is a lot of the time it's a real tussle for you about trying to be home with your children, especially your firstborn who, you know, was born very prematurely and you're torn between that and this extremely high-powered job and it feels like there's really no crossover. It's not like you can go into this very smart cocktail event in New York and kind of talk about what you're going through in your personal life. It's this No, it was this very hard. I, I mean, you know, I think it doesn't matter what echelon you are in, you know, this this, this strain of, of trying to, to work and have your child is just so hard. I mean, it was very, very difficult to, to juggle. And the worst of it was feeling, even if I rushed home, and, and I did every night, I rushed home, you know, to be with Georgie. Nonetheless, you've also got to clear your mind, you know, and it was so hard to always to kind of, the, the day was so Switch kind of, uh, you know, vibrating with all of this action and, and, and challenges and struggles. And then to come home and sort of be zen was was very hard I was found but you know and I also my son turned out to have Asperger's which was um, a very big challenge sort of raising him he's actually turned out great and he's got a job and he you know works downtown he's absolutely terrific now but it was when he was young it was very perilous and worrying because you know he was two months premature we didn't know what was wrong and it was it wasn't until he was about eight or nine that we discovered that he had Asperger's which in some ways was a relief because now we knew you know why there were things that were different but uh, yeah, when I read the book now, I just think, God, I'm glad I'm not that age because yeah. I realized that, you know, the late 30s was a f unbelievable, the amount that women have to do. You know, the things you have to keep in your head and juggle all at once. It's it's this constant fear that the babysitter is going to have a cold <laughs> and your whole house of cards collapses, right? I mean, it's it's one of those things that happens. And something that I found really interesting that you don't really hear mothers talk about because perhaps it seems self-indulgent, but something that you said on your Desert Island Discs is the need as a mother for your own private intellectual or spiritual or reflective space which of course as a writer and an editor you you will need that kind of inner life and how that's kind of so crowded when you have children it's so crowded but I think that's one of the reasons that the diary became important to me because it was like watering that oasis of my internal life yes because you all you're doing is 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 you know putting out 
you know, stimulus, stimulus the whole time and receiving it. And you need to be able to withdraw into that little intellectual island. It's true. And the diary did give me that. It was a place to get calm, to, to, to understand what I felt and thought. Otherwise, you just, you can't process your life. It's yeah, very and, hard. And join the dots together. And join the dots, exactly. On the subject of celebrities, we're interested, if you were still at Vanity Fair, and in fact, this is timely as there is a brand new editor about to be instilled there, who would you put on the cover? Which celebrity do you think is shaping the zeitgeist and kind of really captures your imagination? Well, I think they just had Meghan Markle, which I thought was a very good idea. I have to mm-hmm. say, applaud it for that. I think Meghan is definitely going to be a huge zeitgeist shifter. You know, to have a biracial member of the royal family who's divorced is pretty epic and definitely going to be a huge sort of culture shifter. I think there's some really interesting women politicians now. I mean, I think it'd be fun to do a cover with with um, Ruth Davidson and Nicola Sturgeon in a funny way because these two incredible sort of Scottish pistols, you know, who who are such interesting leaders and yet they're for the same place, which is extraordinary. You know, not many places have astonishing women leaders like that and, and they're two of them who are really remarkable women, actually. I hope we don't lose Angela Merkel, who's my hero, but it doesn't look good for her right now. I think it, the on the Meghan Markle subject... What's so great is that she's been, like Michelle Obama has as well, been so vocal about period poverty because that is something that I think until you have a really big juggernaut behind it like Meghan Markle or Michelle Obama and more people start talking about it, something Dolly and I are very passionate about, people will still just go, periods, yuck, you know, Mm. until there's that force. And I'm really hoping that having written her open letter, which got circulated so much and I saw this huge uptick in how the media was covering it before it would, I remember there were a lot of girls in North Yorkshire last year that were truanting from school due to period poverty, you know, it's not just something that's happening in Africa, it's happening in the UK. And it was on page five of the news paper and it was two inches big the story and then when Meghan Markle started talking about it I saw it shifting forward to page two and page three and I thought god at last we might be able to talk about well this is the thing I mean this is what of course Diana was gift to the royal family too she really understood I mean who cared about the landmine issue before Diana got involved, you know, I mean, it was something that uh, the Nobel laureate uh, who, who won the Nobel Prize for it, you know, had been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. But then when Diana came and walked across an unexploded la- la- landmine field, everybody was talking about that issue. And it's going to be the same with Meghan Markle, as you rightly said, about the period poverty. She can give a voice to things that nobody wants to bother about. An un- yeah. untold PR for a cause. Nothing can, untold. nothing can compare for that kind of symbolism. Obviously, we cannot talk about the culture of celebrities without mentioning the sorbet, uh, the Kardashians. <laughs> Are you riveted or appalled? And would they have made a cover of yours? I've got to say they do not rivet me, really, at all. I'm, I'm, quite, <laughs> I, I'm quite interested in the mother. I mean, I just think in terms of... Momager. Yeah, I think that in terms of having created a huge brand out of these girls, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, as a business head, she's Chris Jenner is a very interesting woman. But no, I mean, I'm not interested in them, in fact, at all, really. Uh, I would be interested in the phenomenon of them, but not in them. Us too, in the, in the kind of seismic impact they've had on celebrity culture and the way women dress, do their makeup, relate to social media anything like that there's this great quote on because you're right I think Chris Jenner is the really riveting one that um, Dolly and I love where she says when Kim's sex tape came out many you know moons ago and she said as a mother I was devastated but as a manager I, I, <laughs> I was thrilled yeah well I know but that's that's what makes her fascinating I, I and but at the same time you know I'd love to see I like Meghan Markle because she's using the celebrity to give spotlight to something that actually means something and with all of that spotlight I'd rather see it 
directed in a place that can actually amplify something of, of real relevance. And there's something to hold on to there, isn't there? And something to hold know. on to. Dolly and I have been discussing Lena Dunham's controversial Defence of Girls writer, Murray Miller, who was accused of rape. She tweeted, Our insider knowledge of Murray's situation makes us confident that sadly this accusation is one of the 3% of assault cases that are misreported every year. We stand by Murray. This is all we'll be saying on the issue. Um, the ensuing backlash on Twitter uh, was the hashtag... Lena Dunham is over party, which has been trending. We're really interested to hear your thoughts on this, on kind of Lena Dunham's statement and on the subsequent Twitter hashtag well, calling for her Well, here's the demise. problem. I don't actually know the story of what did happen. And that, is, and that is what is very scary at the moment, is you don't want to find that a flash mob descends on somebody's reputation without us really knowing the full facts. So I think that's a scary thing. And it is possible that Lena Dunham has inside information that made that her make that comment and that her information is correct. What is, of course, very difficult at the moment is that you sometimes think you know the inside information and then someone that you love and adore turns out that in fact, was behaving in a really egregious way. And I have found it very difficult because some of the people I really love have been accused of these things. And I'm just about to defend them when suddenly 500 more Me Too shoes drops. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, you just want to keep Cautious. your silence until you've had a chance for, for some time to go by and you really find out what was going on because you don't want to find that you've defended somebody. It turns out that 15 other people have had the same experience. So I don't know the truth of the situation. I, I I empathize with her desire to say that, though, about about this man, if she feels that she knows him so tremendously well and that she doesn't believe these charges. They're not, you know, there is, as she said, a 2 or 3% of charges that are not going to be right. But most of the time, of course, we're finding that they are. And indeed, the men are admitting that they are. Well, Pandora and I were very much, I think we both felt, as you said, that it was misjudged to speak out that she should have been quiet or she should have done what Sarah Silverman said about Lucy Kane, particularly as she's become this kind of bastion of, of their ethos of always believe the woman when the woman speaks out because it is such a small percentage of women that lie. But equally, Pandora and I were kind of upset and, and very unimpressed by this huge backlash and it feels like in public discourse, she kind of oscillates from being this Joan of Arc figure of feminism to being vilified in this way that's really monstrously unfair. And is the toppling of a successful woman in this way, is it something that you've witnessed before? Well, it's yes, actually, Donna Karen um, spoke too soon about Harvey Weinstein. I mean, you know, she she made comments that just got her incinerated, you yeah, know, which was basically... those comments when you read them on the page. <laughs> I'm afraid they were not her finest hour. You know, they really weren't. But, you know, maybe she was tired and she'd had... A, you know, I mean, unfortunately, speaking quickly is often a bad idea. In the internet um, age, yeah. And, I mean, it does. There are many people... I, I don't tweet a lot only because I am prone, as you may have noticed with the Vanity Fair diaries, <laughs> to being very candid and, and yeah. quick in my judgments and, and, uh, and sort of satirical thoughts and so forth. And you do that once too often and all of a sudden you are five million flesh eaters to send and, and, and you're just a picked bones. It's, it's pretty scary. There's that hilarious bit where you do an interview when you've just started as an editor and I think you said you were in a sort of bad mood that day or something was, had riled you and you found yourself saying, who cares about... The people art, in Ohio, or people in Ohio, and then yes. immediately you leave, and you said, "What was I thinking?" Shooting my mouth off. Like right. That. If I'd said today, who you know, who cares, who cares about people in about Ohio? I would have just be, I'd be just white bones on the road. You know, <laughs> I really would. It would have just been 
I mean, it was a ridiculous comment, but yeah. you know, you say ridiculous things when you're tired. Sienna Miller called Pittsburgh Shitsburg. Do you remember that? And she was loathed for like a good year. I think, I think she was more loathed for that than she was for having an affair with a married man. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. And plus, it's going to be a beer, it's going to be in your darn obituary. It's going to sit there. I mean, trying to expunge something from your from your you know your your, your from the internet history is just like forget it. I mean, there was one point somebody, you know, I, I took an assignment and I was actually made to. You know, as an assignment, a bit like when Gloria Steinem took the assignment as a bunny and wrote about it. I took the assignment to write about being, a, you know, a, a go-go dancer, and then it just appears in all the clips. And she was a go-go dancer before she took over the New Yorker. Well, you know, I was not a go-go well, while dancer. While you were editing Vanity yeah, Fair, you know, it's like you know, get it out of those clips, will you? Yeah. Shifting now to you being a Brit in New York, time and time again throughout the book, I got the sense that you were someone who was slightly in a kind of transatlantic exile. When you and your husband, Harry, buy your dream home in the Hamptons, uh, my heart kind of ached for you because the first thing you say is that it reminded you of Cornwall and kind of childhood trips to Cornwall. Um, You talk about when you see your old friend, Martin Amos, it makes you nostalgic for your days together at Oxford. At one point, you take a trip back to London and you're suddenly amazed at how villagey everything feels. But then it always did feel like your heart is, was at that point, is well and truly wedded to New York. Did you ever or do you ever still feel that kind of strong pull between America Very much. and England? Really? I do, actually. I mean, I find I do feel a sort of unclenching of my stomach when I come to London. There's a sense of it's home still. Yeah. And uh, I love British irony. I love British sense of humor. I love I love British writers. I love the rain. I do. I love it. It reminds me of going to Wimbledon when I was at school. And in fact, I always felt homesick in New York. In the diaries, I'm always writing about when it rains, I feel homesick because I think about Wimbledon and, and, you know, the school trips um, in the rain, always in the rain. And so, yeah, I do I do get nostalgic for it. There is something very special about British wit and, and British country lanes and all of that stuff. I mean, you know, I'm an I'm a English girl. I mean, I lived here until I was 30, so it'll always really feel my deepest of roots. I still love to go to the National Portrait Gallery and trot around and look at Charles II and all the mistresses and things. You know, I'll never feel quite the same way about American history as I do about British mm. history. I remember reading once that Sophie Dahl, when she lived in New York for the first time in her life, started having like high tea every day and she started subscribing to Country Life. Yeah, you do. I, I subscribe to Country Life. And I, I found a wonderful little restaurant downtown called Tea and Sympathy, which is run by a British woman called, called Nikki Perry. And she has, you know, lovely English teacups with, with roses on. And um, and it's a tiny little place. It's not much bigger than this recording studio where there are like <laughs> six tables. Which is very small. Which is very, very small. And, but you'd walk in and there'd be Rupert Everett sort of quietly sitting there having his tea oh, I love and that. baked beans on toast, you know. And that was, uh, you do get like that after being in New York, which is so kind of hard cliches. and harsh. Yeah. yeah. Of course, it's not like that anymore. Who who, who lives like that now? Nobody. (laughs) I once heard you say in an interview, as a journalist, you have to be very mobile. You have to be an imposter in every world and belonging to none. So much of your work and success, I think, has been your ability to observe. And as you say in the book, notice the right things, which you can't teach. That's intrinsic. I wonder, do you think feeling slightly an outsider in America might have heightened that that skill for you? Very much. I mean, I do think that I notice things in a way and with an intensity that sometimes when you're a citizen of the country that you don't and you you look at things and think, wow, that's really strange or 
America is so big and, and, and commercial and all of these things that, you know, were getting on my nerve endings, I think made the magazine heightened in its own intensity of observation, actually. And uh, so I, I like being an outsider. Of course, New York is made of outsiders, really. I mean, it's so many immigrants in New York. It's incredible. And they're what give the city its energy. The Vanity Fair Diaries have been optioned by Bruna Papandria, who produced the epic hit Big Little Lies, which everyone was talking about earlier this year. That must be hugely exciting for you. It's very exciting. Bruna is an absolute powerhouse. She really is. I was just in L.A. with her last week. And uh, she's about to, to shoot um, a Big Little Lies, too, I think. Uh, she's she's just a really creative woman who, who decides that she now really wants to spend her time on content and, and stories that are about and by women, which is which is exciting. Her, her company's called uh, Made Up Stories, and she's really her whole ethos and her whole you know, manifesto is that she's going to be giving a platform for these new stories about women. So she loved the Vanity Fair Diaries. Within hours of reading it, she'd flown to New York to persuade me to give it to her. And uh, I had no doubt because I liked her so much. And the book is kind of packed with this fast-paced, very funny dialogue and, as I said, these very sharp observations of people's character. And you've written plays before. It would strike me as a really natural progression. Would you write the screenplay for it? Well, I'll certainly, I'm, ex- I'm, a, I'm a co-executive producer, so I will certainly be involved in the dialogue and the, and the shaping of some of it and, and also the choosing of the writer. We're actually auditioning writers at the moment, like looking at writers and seeing what they uh, their approaches are and how they're going to do it. It's a funny sensation, though, to have sold something that's your private diaries, I have to say, because when they keep talking about this Tina character... And Bruna said to me at one point, you've got to stop thinking about this as you. This character is called Tina and you've got to like let that go and she's got to be somebody who's not quite you which is fine of course because it's going to be a miniseries but um it's it's also a bit a bit sort of unsettling i have to say who would play you that's the big question that's the big question exactly well let's get a good script first and then we'll attract <laughs> the very best tina brown thank you so much for coming on the high low we will forever be proud that we got you onto the show that your journalism inspired oh i am thrilled to be here you know really this this little recording studio is where it's all happening right <laughs> This is the room where it happens. <laughs> you can buy the Vanity Fair Diaries now. It's published by Orion Books for £25. If you want to get hold of the Hilo, you can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com. Please do note that we cannot reply to all emails. Or tweet us at the Hilo Show, where we can pretend that we aren't really, really enjoying the new 280-character limit. Thank you at last, Jack Dorsey. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Tina. This is so fun. Hi.